Thank you. May it be so, Lord. May we surrender and know you more. Amen. Amen. Well, happy birthday, City Life. Happy, happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. Without you here, there would be no birthday. A birthday is a time to reflect on our origins, where we came from, how we happened. A birthday is a time to look ahead to the future. What's next? And if you're old enough, a birthday is often a time to look into your ultimate destiny. City Life became a church in 2005. Were any of you part of ministry that, in that first year of the church who are here? Actually, my friend Sandra is here visiting with us today. just happens that she's here on our birthday, and she was here at the very beginning. And a few others of you, did I see you? Oh, Ryan was back there. I saw a few hands earlier. Yes, and, um, and when you're part of a church that's getting started, you don't have a lot to show people. It's not like people can come and see what church is like before they decide if they want to be part of it or not. You're all kind of lucky. Uh, what it is, is you have someone like me or, or my husband Adam talking at you saying, this is the vision. We believe God wants to do something big here. And then you have to decide based on those words if you want to be part of something like a, a church. So we, that was the message for the first year or so. God wants to do something big. We believe God wants to do something big. And it was a risk. It, I don't know what the statistics are now, but at that time, church, the church plant statistics were about only one-third of church plants made it past a few years. Two-thirds didn't. And when it came to urban churches, the numbers were even lower because nobody wanted to throw money. Urban churches were used as a money pit. And, um, and so the statistics were against us for sure. And I remember casting vision. I remember Adam casting vision. And we're like, we, really, we believe God wants to do something big here. God's going to do something big here. And I remember the awe of after in, into that first month of Sundays realizing people are actually coming to this thing. Like somebody actually really believes that God actually really does want to do something big here. And I remember very clearly getting to year five in our fifth anniversary and thinking, we might just make it. We might just make it. And so it, it takes faith to believe that God wants to do something big. And there's also a little relief when you realize he's actually doing it. And we've been talking about the book of Numbers and the people of Israelite wandering through the wilderness. And they have been going through this wilderness for a 40-year period with the belief that God's going to do something big here. They came out of Egypt with Moses telling them, God's going to do something big. And they came in and wandered into the wilderness for about 38 years before they got closer to the edges where Moses was telling them, God's going to do something big. There's a promised land coming. God's going to do something big. And where we've left the people of Israel in the last recent weeks have been, they've had some encouraging things happen in between the sermon where it ended last Sunday and then where we're starting up this Sunday. In, in the chapter before where we're starting today, they'd had some encouraging things. They had been getting read, ready to get close to the promised land, and God had been giving them some victories about some war, and people were coming and attacking them, and God was protecting them, and things were going pretty well. So if, if you're visiting today, or if you haven't been here for this series, there are three locations that the book of Numbers is organized around. We have here Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments was given, and the Israelites camped here for about a year or so. And then for most of the book of Numbers, they spend about 38 years in the desert of 
Paran. This is the wilderness. This is an arid place. There's not much there. You don't see lots of people groups developing here. This is a place where people kind of come for a short period of time and usually don't stay in one place long because there's usually not water to sustain them. So the Israelites spent about 38 years going kind of in circles in, in some various places in the desert of Paran. Then the third location is the plains of Moab. This is a fertile green space right around the city of, or the country of Moab. And the Israelites are are in this area, and just across the river is the promised land that God is getting them close to. And so the last part of the book of Numbers largely centers on the things that happen around the plains of Moab, and that is where we're picking up our story today. We'll be in Numbers chapter 22. In Numbers chapter 21, we're not going to go through this part of the passage, but Israel had just gone through the lands that were governed by a king named Sihon and a king named Og. Sihon and Og were friends, and they were, they were, um, they were kings of, this, uh, of these countries, and they had attacked Israel, and God had protected them. Og was the king over 60 fortified cities, cities with walls and reinforcements, and like these were no small countries to conquer. This was a really big deal that Israel beat them. The, the book of Deuteronomy tells us about Sihon and Og, and it describes them as being very large men. It describes them as giants. And we, we read in the book of De- Deuteronomy that Og had a bed made of iron and that it was of enormous size. The Bible tells us that his, his bed, this iron bed, was 13 and a half feet long and six feet wide. And they, they said that the commentators say that a man who needed a bed this size was probably about 10 or 11 feet tall. So this, they were considered giants. They were these physically huge and intimidating people. And Israel had actually conquered Sihon and Og. Now this was making national news. Everybody's talking about it. International news. All the countries around are saying, well, this is, if, if this wandering group of nomads who are, who've been camping in the wilderness who came from who knows where, if they can take over Sihon and Og, the rest of us are in very big trouble. This is really not good news for all of the rest of us countries that are around the area. And so there are these murmurings and this concern and this worry that's rising up among the different groups of people that are around the plains of Moab. And that brings us to the setting for our passage for today. Numbers chapter 22, verse 1. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. So there's the country of Moab, and Balak is the king of Moab. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. They are terrified. The, the leaders of Moab are coming together. They're, they're uniting in, a, tr- in a, a treaty with the leaders of Midian. They're, they're making an alliance together. And they're like, these Israelites are coming. And they're like, they're like an ox, this huge, powerful animal. And they're going to come and they're going to wipe out all the vegetation just like an ox does because they're so strong and they're so powerful. And we don't know what to do. Now, they didn't know that Israel wasn't planning to attack them. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy tells us that God had specifically communicated to the Israelites, don't attack Moab, because God had a different plan for what was going on. But they didn't know that. 
All they knew was that this huge group of people coming their way had wiped out Sihon and Og, and they were a force to be reckoned with. So they're very, very concerned. It's the leaders of Moab, the leaders of Midian. News had traveled from Sihon and Og. This is international news. The whole land is terrified of the people of God. The whole land is concerned about what is going to happen, and they know that the Israelites have a powerful God. Here's the first observation in today's passage. Number one, God is the God of nations, and he operates on a worldwide scale. These other countries had gods that they worshipped. Each country would usually have a, go- a few gods that were kind of like their major gods that they especially focused on. That was how the ancient Near East worked. You, you kind of picked among all the gods, and you had your, your country's one or two or three gods that you especially focused on. Israel doesn't even fit into any of that category because they have one god, and because they claim that their god is the one true god, and that the others are, are nothing. God is the god of nations, and he operates on a worldwide scale. Here's what that means for us as Christians. We worship the God who claims to be the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We do not worship a God who says, well, I am the God of the Christians, or I am the, I am, I'm the American countries, I'm an American God. We have a God who says, I'm over all the gods. I'm it. I am supreme. And as Christians, we profess to believe in a God who makes this statement, and we need to know what it is that our God, who our God claims to be. Our God is the God of nations, and he operates on a worldwide scale. Well, the passage continues like this, the second half of verse 4. So Balak, the king, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor, near the river, in his native land. So King Balak says, I'm going to send some messengers to go summon a man by the name of Balaam. Now let me just give you a little bit of context. You'll see this coming up in the passage in just a moment. King Balak calls for Balaam, who is a sorcerer. This sorcerer, Balaam, is internationally known among the nations of the area. And he is called upon regularly, and he's paid to pronounce blessings or cursing on different groups of people. We have Balaam, who is known among not only the nations, but he's also recorded in history, not only in the Bible, but also in some extra-biblical material. In fact, back in 1967, archaeologists discovered an inscription called the Deir Allah inscription. It's uh, a picture of it's up here. You can't see it very well from where you're sitting, but in those dark spots, there is ancient Near Eastern writing that's been uncovered, and it describes Balaam, the son of Beor, the divine seer, the exact same Balaam that we have in scripture also testified to in secular literature uh, from, from, pagan, from other pagan groups. Uh, this is currently located at the Jordan Archaeological Museum, and I, I just think it's always fun to see things like this and how they, they collaborate the truth of the Bible. Lots of archaeology does this, this is just one little example. But Balaam is the sorcerer, and Bible experts tell us that he was an expert in examining animals. He would read the entrails of animals and by that would do divination to determine the will of gods. Balaam would learn what would be for him a very strange lesson through this experience. 
he is used to manipulating the pagan gods of the country around him, the countries around him. But he would have an encounter with the God of the Israelites. And he would encounter the God of reality and discover that this God would be fundamentally different than other gods he has worked with before. He would not be just another deity that he would manipulate. Okay, so let me just pause for a minute. In this series, we've talked about all sorts of characters and people and places. We've talked about Moses and Aaron, and we've talked about the priests and the Levites, and we've heard all of these names over the last few weeks. All of those characters are in the background. They're in the shadows for this particular story. This particular part of scripture brings up a different set of characters and a different angle. These are people who are, who, the Israelites are doing their own thing. They're, they're over here down in the, in the um, what, what's this place over here? Thank you, Plains of Moab. Uh, they're down here in the Plains of Moab. They're doing their thing, right? And what have the Israelites been doing all along? They've been like, and they're probably grumbling about something, right? Because that's what they've been doing. So they're down in the plains of Moab grumbling about something, probably. We don't know. They're, they're just down there. And then this is where the other people surrounding them, the other nations, get highlighted for us in this passage. And that's who we're looking at today. What's going on in the nations around the Israelites? The passage continues. So back to King Balak, shaking in his boots, Balak. Balak said... A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. So Balak, Balak is a person of faith, isn't he? Not a person of of the faith of the Israelites. He doesn't believe in that God. He just, he has faith in the wrong things. He has faith in the wrong gods. Because it's important who you have faith in, right? And Balak says, I'm going to try to hinder the Israelites. I'm going to try to frustrate their plans. I'm going to destroy the work and people of God. So he says, we're going to do a spiritual attack. We're going to call down, have curses called down on them. And we're going to have unseen warfare instead of seen warfare and see if that helps us. The second observation in the story is this. Number two, though unseen, spiritual attack is a real threat. Spiritual attack is a real threat. If you are a believer in Jesus, then there are realms of reality beyond what we can see. The Bible tells us that there are forces of evil that are at work. The Bible tells us that there is a supernatural enemy that works against us. And as Christians, we have to believe that there is an unseen realm that we don't always recognize. I think it's important for us to, to realize that spiritual attack is real, even when we can't see it. The passage continues in Numbers 22, verse 7. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will bring you back the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite princes stayed with him. God came to Balaam and asked, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. 
But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's princes, Go back to your own country, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite princes returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. So Balaam does the right thing, right? He's doing the right thing right now. He, he seeks the Lord. He says, he's, he seeks God, and, and uh, he says, what should I do with these people? And the Lord himself appears to Balaam. And he says, Balaam, even this guy is a pagan sorcerer. He's not an Israelite prophet. And the Lord comes to him, and he speaks to him, and he says, you leave them alone. They are a blessed people. You can't curse them. Not going to work. You. And, and so Balaam, uh, Balaam starts by doing the right thing. And we know from Scripture, and we'll get into this a little bit more next week, we know from Scripture that Balaam is a very conflicted character. We see little hints of good in today's passage, but he does not ultimately he is not ultimately on the side of God, and he's not ultimately participating in the good that God wants to give to the Israelites. But at this moment, he tells the people who've been sent by the king, go back home, I'm not going to go with you, I'm not going to do it. Look, God told me no. Verse 15, Then Balak sent other princes, more numerous and more distinguished than the first. They came to Balaam and said, This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Do not let anything keep you from coming to me because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. The king says, I will pay you whatever you want. I will do whatever you tell me to do. Just come and curse these people. Verse 18, but Balaam answered them, even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now stay here tonight as the others did, and I'll find out what else the Lord will tell me. Do you, do you hear what's going on here? There, there's, we, see this, we, we see this as the scripture goes on, but Balaam wavers a little bit. He doesn't just say no. He says, no, but then he says, but why don't you stick around a little longer? And I'll ask the Lord again, and maybe he'll say something different this time. And we see as Balaam persists in, in his work and as in the next couple chapters of scripture, we'll see that Balaam is not a consistently steady character, but we, and we see that he's not too worried about being in line with God. He does some things in line with God, but many things not in line with God. Here's the thing, church. If, like Balaam, you want to persist in acting stupid, God won't force you to be smart. Point number three. If you want to persist in partnering with evil, God will not force you to partner with him. If you are determined to do your own thing, if you are determined to go your own way, God won't make you follow his. It's called free will. <laughs> it's called if, if you want to choose stupid, he'll let you choose stupid. If you refuse to heed God's directions that are right in front of your face, he's going to give you the freedom to do what you want because he wants a real relationship with you, not a forced relationship. He wants you to freely come to him. And just beware, if you choose to go your own way, it's not ultimately going to be worth it, as will happen to Balaam next week. Numbers chapter 20. Have I foreshadowed that enough? <laughs> that Balaam is not on the right path. Numbers chapter 20, uh, 22, verse 20. 
that night, this is the second night, God came to Balaam and said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam gets up, he saddles his donkey, he hits the road, and what is there? Okay, pull that passage back. We've got to see that scripture one more time. An angel of the Lord is where? Why? To oppose him. To oppose him. Yes, and Balaam doesn't see this. And the purpose of this opposition is to stop Balaam from pursuing the path that he's on. The purpose of this angel is to keep Balaam from going the wrong way, from doing the wrong thing. The purpose of this angel is to oppose him, to get him on the right path. City life, sometimes opposition isn't something to be overcome. Sometimes opposition is the Lord's way of stopping a reckless path. Sometimes we go through trials and tribulations and we blame it on the devil and we say, the devil is getting in my way. The devil is hindering me. The devil's making this hard. But sometimes, I would suggest to you, sometimes the Lord in his grace gives opposition to our path to help us do the right thing. Now it takes wisdom and I think we need to pray. If you are facing opposition, I think it's worth examining Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Lord, what do you want me to learn from this situation? Lord, what do you want me to see in this situation? Because opposition might just be the Lord's way of stopping a reckless path. So then a funny thing happens on the way to curse the children of Israel. The passage continues. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. Okay, here's, here's the first obstacle. Balaam doesn't see this, but the donkey's going off the side of the road. Verse 24, Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between two vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat her again. Obstacle number two. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat her with his staff. Okay, so let's just review what's happening here. Balaam is on the donkey. Donkey suddenly stops because there's an angel with a sword pointed at the donkey, and donkey goes off down into the field. Balaam gets donkey back in, online. They continue on their path. Then they come to a narrow place, let's see, it was a narrow path between two vineyards, all right, so there, there's not much space to go, and there's an angel who's cramping the space, and so the donkey tries to go over to the side and ends up crushing Balaam's foot. Imagine the words coming out of Balaam's mouth. He is in pain. He is not happy because this donkey, who he is used to having do what he wants to do, his donkey is doing his own thing, and Balaam is very, very unhappy, as well as in pain. And so then they proceed, and they go on, they come to a narrow place, 
and the donkey wants to turn around. Donkey can't turn around because there's no space. And so donkey does what only a, a, a stubborn donkey can do. Donkey sits down and is like, I'm not going any further. Balaam is livid. He is so angry. He's like, what is up with my donkey? This is not what is supposed to happen. And he, once again, he beats his donkey. Verse 28, then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? The Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and we have the original <laughs> talking donkey. That's not the original. The original's right here in the Bible. This donkey speaks to Balaam and says, what have I done? Why are you beating me? And then, maybe perhaps an even more ridiculous verse follows. Balaam answered the donkey. Balaam talks back. Balaam answered the donkey, you have made a fool of me. If I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. And then the donkey talks back again. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? Balaam says, no. <laughs> okay, so they just had this whole conversation, and the scripture presents it as if Balaam thinks this is completely normal. And, and then they, they go on. And it says in verse 31, Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. The Lord opened the eyes of the seer. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared her. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. This seer, the one who can see into the future, the one who can see the workings of the gods, supposedly, is completely blind to the God of Israel. But his dumb beast is able to see the spiritual reality of God. This man, who was an expert in animal divination, has no wisdom compared to the wisdom of his donkey. Balaam was a specialist in animal divination, supposedly, but here his animal saw what he was blind to. The whole purpose of this passage of scripture, the whole reason why it's written in the scriptures and included in the Torah, the whole reason it's in the book of Numbers is because the biblical writers wanted you to laugh. They wanted you to laugh at the humiliation of this sorcerer who thinks he knows better than God. They wanted you to laugh at the sorcerer. This is a mockery of Israel's enemies, a mockery showing that our God is more powerful. Our God won't be manipulated by some sorcerer. Our God is the winner. He's the strong one. This Balaam thing, this curse thing, that's nothing to our God. 
It reminds me of the passage in, in uh, Colossians 2.15, where it's describing the work of Jesus on the cross. And it says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus, through his death on the cross, disarmed the powers and authorities. He disarmed the evil of powers. And he made a spectacle, a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus shows up all of evil. This is a mockery of the enemy. So Balaam says, all right, angel, I'll, I'll do whatever you want. I'll do whatever you want. And angel says, you can go, but only speak what I tell you to speak. The passage continues. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite town on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? Well, I've come to you now, Balaam replied. But can I say just anything? I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. Then Balaam went with Balak to Kiriath-Huzoth. Balak sacrificed cattle and sheep and gave some to Balaam and the princes who were with him. The next morning, Balak took Balaam up to Bamoth Baal, and from there he saw part of the people. King says, finally, you're here. You really think I can't pay you enough? And Balaam says, I can only say what the Lord says. King says, great. I'm going to take you up, and I'm going to have you look out over these people, and I'm going to see the people that I want you to curse. Now, I'm not going to read the next chapter, Numbers 23, but I'm going to summarize what happens in Numbers 23. So he takes Balaam up to this place. Balaam builds seven pagan altars to pray to the pagan gods, and he is working out how, what kind of curse he's going to do. And Balaam says, okay, king, you stay here. I'm going to go off, and I'm going to listen to God, and then I'll come back, and I will speak what God tells me to speak. And so he does that, he goes off, and then he comes back. He comes back, and he, he looks out over the people, and he speaks the words that God has told him to speak, and he pours out of his mouth not a string of curses, but a string of blessing. King Balaam, Balak says, What have you done? What have you done? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but bless them. Balaam answered, must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? I have to say what God tells me. Balak then goes on to say, okay, okay, that was not good enough. We've got to do this right. So he says, Balaam, come over here. I'm going to take you to a different location. He, he brings him around to a different area. They're in some sort of ravine. They're on some sort of, excuse me, a cliff overlooking a ravine. They're looking down on the people of Israel. And, and Balak says, you need to see how vast these people are. Look how many of them there are. This is a real threat this is a problem, and there is something that you need to do something about them. There is no way that I can win against these people. So come with me, and, and I'll show you. And, and then from here, curse them for me. Once again, Balaam says, okay, king, stay here. I'm going to go off. I'm going to go listen to God. And when I, gonna when I come back, I'm going to speak the words that God gives me. And so he comes back. King Balak is waiting for the curse to come. And as Balaam opens his mouth, out pours paragraph after paragraph of blessing, 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 blessing. Balak once again rages and says, Balaam, this is not going to work. This is not okay. I need you to do something different. So he's, 
the, I would think the cue would take a clue by now, but he hasn't. But he says, okay, one more stop. He says, I'm going to take you to one more place. And he takes him to another place, and he says, perhaps it will please God to let you curse them from me, for me from there. And so Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, overlooking the wasteland. So they're up high, looking down on all the people. Balaam goes off, he listens to the Lord, he comes back, and he speaks blessing after blessing after blessing. And Numbers 24.10 says, Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave at once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. You're not getting paid, and it's God's fault. <laughs> and that's not the end of Balaam. There's more to come on Balaam, but that's the end for this particular section. And so the passage ends where, God, where it had been intended by the enemies to pour out curse after curse after curse. It ends with Israel being blessed over and over and over again. And the curses of the enemy, the spiritual warfare of the enemy, is thwarted. Here's our final message for today. Our final point, number five. God is doing a bigger thing than you can see. God is doing a bigger thing than you can see. There, this passage doesn't talk about Moses. He doesn't talk about Joshua. Moses isn't leading anything. Joshua isn't leading any wars. The priests and Levites aren't doing anything special. You don't even hear grumbling people. Israel is out here in the plains of Moab doing whatever they're doing where all this warfare, all of this spiritual warfare is going on around them. All of these plots and threats and curses are swirling around above them. Balak and Balaam are up on the mountain overlooking the people, fearful and plotting, and the people are oblivious below. And these spiritual forces that are at work, the, the work of the enemy, the fostering of fear, the fostering of resentment, the, the fostering of of a complex character in Balaam, the work of the enemy for cursing instead of blessing, all of that they're oblivious to. Let's just remember where we've been the last three weeks in, in the sermons on the people of Israel. Three weeks ago we had the 12 spies that went and they scouted out the promised land and they went and they, came, they were faithless and they said, we're going to die by these giants. There's no way. And the people rebelled, and God says, here's your consequence. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until this generation of faithlessness dies out. And then two weeks ago, we had the rebellion of, of Korah, the rebellion of the Levites, the, the people who were close to the Holy of Holies, the people who were very close to the presence of God. And even they, these, these holy people who had, a real, who had closeness to God, even they rebelled against God and experienced God's judgment. And then last week we had the rebellion of Moses and Aaron. Moses was a man who the scripture says he was so close to God that he, he saw God's face and his own face glowed from being in God's presence. And even Moses couldn't stay faithful to God. And the book of Numbers talks about seven different rebellions. A rebellion, a rebellion, 
a rebellion against God, 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 and a rebellion against God. Seven being the number of completion in the Bible. Complete and total failure of people. Complete and total failure of our rebellion. Our consistent missing out on being able to be to God, to be in the holy presence of God. And yet here we have a God who after this seventh symbolic rebellion, this covenant faithfulness of God who says, you know, Israel, you're a blessed people. And all I have for you right now is blessing. You are my people. You are my chosen people. And although there are consequences for your choices along the way, I have blessing for you. There are good things ahead. There is a future for you. I have good plans for you. And over and over and over, the faithfulness of God ari arises and surpasses the human unfaithfulness. Because God's working a bigger plan than we can see. God's working with covenant people, people who belong to him. And if you have put your trust in Jesus, you are part of God's covenant people. You have been made the kingdom of priests that's described in the scripture. You are part of God's covenant, and God is leading you into his promised land, into life, into the new Eden with him that he is establishing. God is doing bigger things than we can see. And here on City Life's 17th birthday today, we are just one church in thousands and millions of churches around the world. We're just one church in, in the last 2,000 years. One little gathering of people who are seeking to love Jesus and follow Jesus. We're one of many, we're, but we're part of a bigger picture. We're, we're a church, we're, we're part of a bigger plan of redemption that God is working out. We're not just, one, we're not just a church, we're, we're part of a body of Christians across our country, across North America, across the world. And as we follow Jesus, we are participating in God's bigger plan, a plan that's beyond city life, a plan that's beyond Grand Rapids, a plan that's beyond our country. God is working out a bigger plan for the whole world because he is a God for the whole world over all nations. Through our 17 years of ministry, we've seen many people find saving faith in Jesus. We've seen many people, like we did today, follow Jesus in baptism and say, out of obedience to following Jesus, I'm going to be baptized like he told me to, and I'm going to follow him. We've seen hundreds, if not thousands, of people who have made hundreds of daily decisions to live faithfully for Jesus. Little decisions that you make every day on choosing whether you'll choose God's path of life or choose his path of death, whether you'll choose wisdom or foolishness. Many here in the ministry have been challenged towards spiritual leadership and spiritual maturity. Sometimes we get pushed into learning maturity and we don't want to learn maturity. But God's using you and he's using this body to form us and to shape us. You are not just living for Jesus on your own. It is not just about you having a personal salvation with Jesus and making sure you get into heaven. God's doing something much bigger. He's doing something with his church body. He's doing something with his people. God's people are part of God's kingdom, and you are part of God's bigger plan that is much, much bigger than what we can even see. 
And church, though sin and evil and cursing and death may come at us, God doesn't laugh at you. He knows our struggle, and he is gracious and kind and loving toward us. But he laughs at that evil. He mocks at those forces of evil because he knows they are nothing in comparison to his resurrection power. He is big. He is strong. He has plans, and you have the opportunity to be part of them. So happy 17th birthday to us and to the life that God has, from remembering our origins to looking ahead to our future, to looking ahead to our destiny of one day being in the presence of Jesus himself. Happy birthday blessings to you. Would you please stand?